And now, The Moment with Brian Koppelman. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My number one goal for uh, this interview with my guest, the great Craig Mazin, is for me not to get in any kind of uh, a put-down contest with him uh, because life experience has told me that I can't beat him. You know, sometimes there's somebody you come up against, for whatever reason, you might be a pretty good gun, but this one guy can always shoot you down, this one woman. I cannot thwart Mason. He knows where all the pressure points are uh, and pushes them <laughs> really well. So uh, I'm just thinking about, uh, there's so much to talk to him about. And this guy's one of the most successful writers uh, and also a producer in the business. Uh, he's written movies like Hangover 2, Hangover 3, Identity Thief, many more. Uh, he's also somebody who has become a real voice for screenwriters, uh, both to the to the world on his podcast, uh, the one that he does with John August, another great screenwriter, his podcast Script Notes, but also within the industry, behind the scenes, he's somebody that screenwriters go to for sage counsel uh, and, you know, to be insulted. Uh, yeah, I guess, you know, it's worth paying the price for the one in order to get the other. But Mazin has come to this place of success and stature honestly and with real struggle. Uh, he's had a few different uh, absolute career low points before these incredible high points and somehow has, through uh, a combination of his uh, intellect and heart, um, persevered, done great work, and found himself in this really lofty perch. And I'm really eager to talk to him about all of that, about how he sees the place uh, of the screenwriter, about how he balances the different areas of his life. And I'm going to try really hard to resist getting into any kind of a battle. Thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting the podcast. Uh, I love getting the tweets and I love seeing the reviews on iTunes and I love engaging in this conversation. Uh, it's really inspiring to me. So I appreciate it. And please keep it up. And uh, Craig Mason will be here soon and, and hopefully I won't end up, you know, cowering in the corner. All right, Craig Mason has, voice for has, the entire has thing, right? walked in now. Oh yeah, what voice do you want to use, Craig? Uh, this is my sexy voice. Hey, Brian. You don't rock that on your own <laughs> podcast. You just bring that out when no, you guess? No, no, I do. You've never heard? Oh, occasionally. It's... Uh... I would say about once every six podcasts, I'll do it just to just to make John uncomfortable, and it and it does. Great. It does. I already um, did your introduction. Great. Before you walked in here, and oh, I, do I need to know? <laughs> I mentioned. Well, I did say that um, I was going to keep this a jousting-free. Oh, sure. Uh, hour, because just because uh, I don't like losing, and that's what would happen. <laughs> well, and also I am your guest. You know, I, I even I have some sense of. Uh, I don't know what you'd call it, behavior, good behavior. Yeah, there's no question about it. Um, I really appreciate you doing this. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. It's exciting to have you here and to have you here in this context. Um, you know, uh, as I, I said when I was introducing you, your career, I think, is one that is can really be examined like forensically by people. I hope not. Well, no, I, I know that. But the thing is, uh, I think it's very inspiring if you examine it forensically. Okay. 
And, and you know, uh, we've talked a little bit about this, uh, that what I'm interested in, um, in, in doing the show is, you know, how people have accomplished remarkable things, process big moments, yeah. highs and lows. Yeah. And you've had this great success and you're on an incredible run. But I thought a good place to start would be... All the failures? Well, <laughs> let's jump into failure. <laughs> Why not? Uh, do, how many hours do we have? You know, as many as you want. Okay. But what I really want, I want to talk about, because uh, when I first had the idea to do this, this show in general, uh, there's this moment I was thinking about, which is this golfer, Phil Mickelson, um, hit two balls out uh, in a huge tournament and cost himself a major. And I always wondered, like, how... What he taught... Talk, the way he talked to himself the next day. Mm. And so you and I were friends. Uh, I've been friends now. I, I was trying to figure it out. I think we met in 2005 because I remember the movie that I was shooting when we first spoke. I'll take your word for it. That's a long time. Right. Yeah, it's a long time. Wow. And so I, we were friends after your movie Superhero came out, which was not oh. a success. No, that was a disaster. It was a disaster on so many levels. Um, <clears throat> I mean, you, you, I don't mind... Uh, a creative success and a business disaster. I mind a business success and a creative disaster. I, I think I've, you know, maybe Scary Movie 4 might fall into that category. I like Scary Movie 3 a lot. I know David Zucker and uh, Jim Abrams do as well. Um, well. That's a really funny, really well-executed movie. I like that one. Yeah, but there, one there's no shame in those. Those are movies that bring a lot of people a lot of joy. Yeah, and, and you know, I, for me, despite the fact that the, the title sounds silly and... The blank movie phenomenon was debased in so many ways by so many different people. Um, that movie was like I met my heroes. You know, I met I met the Zaz guys, and I learned an enormous amount from David and Pat Proft and Jim and Jerry and. And if people haven't seen Airplane and Kentucky Fried Movie, they're early. They need movies. to get out. Get out. <laughs> yeah, just, 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 just stop listening. But a, a lot of you know, uh, there are a lot of pe people in there. You know, teens or Grantland fans who listen to the, the podcast and. A lot of the time they'll be psyched when they get movie recommendations that they wouldn't otherwise know about. You know, right. so like those are movies that are cornerstones of the people Absolutely. making comedies right now, for sure. Any uh, if you work in comedy, uh, you're the 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 Zaz team, the Zucker Abram Zucker team is as uh, vital to your comedy encyclopedia as the Marx Brothers or the Three Stooges or you know Billy Wilder. I mean, to me, they're all they're they're part of the compend the compendium that you need to know. Um, in fact, I'm doing, uh, um, this coming Thursday evening back in Los Angeles, I'm doing a, um, a Q and a with, uh, David and Jim and Jerry for top secret They're they, It's so funny. They've actually done a director's cut of top secret. Even now it's 30 years later. There's, there were a couple of scenes that bothered them. They just they cut had them to out. go back. They cut them out. <laughs> no, they got rid of them. That's their director. Yeah. Cut. It's not like a director's cut where you can look at footage and put stuff back in. Cause it's all lost to time. I mean, it's a 30 sure. year old movie. They just took some stuff out. I love that. But um, but let's go back to to superhero. Uh, well, movies. here's what. So you 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 had these big hit movies that you'd written. Yeah. And then you you wrote and directed directed this movie superhero. Yeah. And when I when I when I look at where you are now. Yeah. Which is so deeply in the firmament of Hollywood. Yeah. Of you're somebody who you know movie studio presidents call you to help solve their problems. Creators of big shows ask you to help them with notes on their scripts. Right. Uh, as I have with. Uh, looking at cuts of their shows. I want to understand that when, when you were at this low point where you felt, mm. I mean, what did it, what did it feel like to you? How did you talk to yourself about where you were in the business? And then how did you figure out that you needed how to rebuild? Very good question. Um, I, there were a lot of things that went into that failure. 
Um, there are parts of that movie that I still love and respect. A lot of it um, was the result of making a movie under very difficult circumstances, nearly impossible circumstances. The 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 uh, Weinstein brothers had spooled off from Disney, and Scary Movie three that franchise was in the divorce was considered a co-parent. So there was a lot of financing there because Disney was paying for half of it. But uh, by the time we got to superhero movie, a bunch of things had happened. One that was not a co-parenting, so our budget was maybe a thirded. We had about a third of the money that we did for the other movies. Um, did you know that going then going into it? Did you know this is going to be really hard because of that? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I did. Um, I also knew that after doing two the, spoof parody is incredibly difficult to do. It's really hard. People don't understand how much. All you have to do is watch ever. the ones that don't work to know how hard it is. Well, and and you just don't see all the sweat that goes into it because it's you know it's three jokes a minute and you never. I mean it's it's impossible. I don't know why anybody does it. It was, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. I don't think I'll ever do anything quite that hard again in movies. So I think all of us were exhausted. Frankly, we had done two back to back under very difficult circumstances. So we had a much lower budget. Our time frame once again, as always with uh, Bob Weinstein was very compressed. And um, even as we were shooting, it seemed like um, my, frankly, my relationship with Bob, which had always been, I think, you know, like most relationships, when you hear about people talk about the Weinsteins, it's ups, it's highs and lows. The lows were outnumbering the highs, um, you know, and I think he would agree to that if he were here. And so we weren't really seeing eye to eye at all. I think um, there was a real disconnect between the movie that David Zucker and I wanted to make, which was a throwback to the old days where you wouldn't parody 20 movies, but you'd parody one, like Airplane is Zero. And Zucker produced the movie. Correct. He was there with me every day. Um, So we had one vision. uh, Bob had another. um, And as we went along, I just kind of kept losing fights, all the while shooting 18-hour days and becoming exhausted. And and then in the editing process, it just really got ugly. So... um, you know, I knew that we were in serious trouble. Um, you always do. And when the movie came out uh, and bombed in all regards, although, you know, it made $75 million worldwide. It cost 22 Yes. So as far as bombs go, not that bad. I mean, it's not like, sure. you know, it's not, thank God, but it was, it was bad. And I took a step back. And made a a conscious decision to start behaving like the person I wanted people to see me as. Uh, There was a certain kind of writer that I knew I could be, and I wanted to be that writer. And how, so how long after, because in our business especially, perception, uh, you know, like you said, the the rational thing that, um, hey, you know, the student really lose money and people, nobody cares about that. In the end, nobody cares. And and as hard as those movies are to make, if they're not enormously successful or considered a success, they're looked down upon. Yeah, it's not their... In other words, it's not their problem to accommodate my rational explanation. They don't care. Right. And so you were able to... But a lot of people would just... All they'd do is live in the bitching and moaning uh, place. Yeah. Ha- and and you didn't complain a lot. You had a real gallows humor about it, but I mean, I, you yeah. you didn't, you know, you would email your friends, but you didn't complain uh, about it. And when you, you say things so empowering that you were going to become that writer, how did you, how did you sort of craft that decision to yourself? Like, what was the process of, I can be, I don't have to be defined by this? Well... 
the only nice thing about the the rational explanation for that it wasn't the biggest disaster is that there are some disasters you simply can't avoid. If you write a movie that costs $120 million and it makes $20 million, you have a tattoo on you, on your forehead, and it's going to take a long time. It's very visible. This thing was like a quiet, you know, so I knew that I hadn't completely destroyed things in a huge way. I, I wasn't about to walk out there and say, well, what's my next directing gig? Now, interestingly, that was a conscious decision because there were offers. You know, the funny thing about comedy is there are so few people that direct comedies that even if you direct a bad comedy that doesn't do well, you're a comedy director. So they'll give you bad scripts because people are always trying to make sure. producers will. And can you make it yeah, better? And then can you find your way? What it means is 12 people have passed on this, but we still want to make it anyway. What about you? And I made a choice to say no to any of that. That would be a bad idea. I didn't want to keep going down that tunnel. So um, I just uh, decided that either I could be the kind of person who says, uh, right now, I'm okay and you're not okay, meaning this is all your fault. It's not my fault. And I'm going to sit here and wait for the rest of the world to treat me justly. Or I could say, I'm not okay. You are okay. The rest of the world, it doesn't owe me a damn thing. And what I'm doing right now isn't commensurate with what my ability is or what I want to do. I've, I've profited from it. I have a certain amount of security. I've t- taken care of my wife and my children. And now I need to to push myself to do better. And that meant turning down things and turning down money and doing other things that were for less and being willing to do things for less until... And to write things for free. Spec, I mean, and to spec, to write a, a spec script. Didn't you write a spec within that time I period did, too? yeah. And, and that spec didn't even go anywhere, but it was a great experience for me because it, I learned a lot about what I... I learned a lot about what I could do, what I was capable of. I mean, I also learned that when you write certain things like that, they don't necessarily sell because they're so, you know, they're, they're niche. But, but another, to me, interesting facet of it, there are two, they're kind of bundled together. One is in a moment where very often what people would do is only do one piece of it. They would beat themselves up yeah. uh, about the choices that they'd made, but then they wouldn't complete the second part, which, which is to say, I'm going to do something different now. Right. Which you consciously... You have to. ...did do. You have to. You consciously said, and I think it changed my perception, I could be wrong, is that you lost weight then. Yeah. You changed the way you were dressing and carrying yourself a little bit. Well, you have. if you lose weight, you have to change the way you're dressing. But you got cool shoes. <laughs> Not right now, I don't. Right. I well, really, now you don't, you don't well, have to I, anymore. No, I mean, the you're back. Is, <laughs> you have, did it. I have flat feet. I got, I, you know, I got to wear these chunky No, shoes. but I'm not saying it um, in, in any... I'm not, no, to I To me, it was an changes. empowering thing yes. because uh, what, I saw, what I saw, and I just want... Yeah. What I saw was somebody who was like, you know what? I've actually... This got here. I've actually undervalued myself this whole time is what it felt like. I'm still wrestling with that, by the way. Yeah. With which part of it? I, I still wrestle with a tendency to undervalue myself. And I don't think um, I don't think I'll ever be at risk for imagining that I'm some kind of genius. I'm not. Um, I, I've always looked at myself as a student of everything. Um, but at times by beating, not beating myself up, but by undervaluing what I was capable of doing, I was putting myself in situations that frankly weren't good for me. Sometimes you have to say, okay, look, I don't have the self-esteem to believe that I belong in this particular spot, but I should go there anyway. 
and yes. see if I can succeed there. And often when people decide to do that is in a moment of success, right? Because in a moment of success, often people get full of themselves. Right. And then they say, oh, I should jump uh, a level in stature. And you didn't do it in success. You did it in, I, know, I don't want to yes. use the word failure. No, That's an, absolute failure but, is correct. But you did it in, in failure. Yes. And did you have, was there self-doubt attached to it for you? Or, <sighs> or, or was it like, you know what, I'm finally uh, going to set this course and if I'm vigilant, um, I can deliver myself what I'm promising. Yeah, I think it's probably the latter. I, if I have, uh, on the one hand, if I devalue myself a bit, on the other hand, I've always felt that if you put me in front of 10 feet of concrete and said, walk through it, I'd get through it. I believe that. I really do. It's just a question of pushing yourself hard enough through rock. And I've never felt like anything could stop me if I really tried. Um, and so I really tried. And what do you think made you that person? I don't. I, it's either it's either all genetics or all terrible childhood or a combination of both. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, obviously, we're always a very a bright person, but you know, you've. Uh, I mean, you weren't you weren't raised pretty far from show business, am I right? Uh, on Staten Island by public school teaching parents. Yes. No. No. Not a lot of showbiz in the family. Showbiz. Show business. Uh, forget show business. Even yeah. like. Being like an accountant that worked for yourself was considered risky. <laughs> you know, I mean, my, I mean, both of my parents worked for the city. You know, it's like go work somewhere where you are, you know, taken care of by a system and on hierarchy. Uh, and certainly in the notion of being freelance, anything. And they had a complicated relationship with with money, right? I mean, uh, well, I think that a lot of you know middle class families, um, middle class Jewish families in the seventies and eighties. I mean, listen, my dad worked three jobs at one point. You know, which is incredibly admirable. I mean, maybe that's where you could see the genetic connection. I mean, he said, okay, I've got to make money. I don't have enough money because I'm, I'm teaching public school. So I'm going to teach public school. Then I'm going to go after the, when the public school ends, I'll then go teach classes at a private school. And then when that's over, I'll come back to Staten Island from Brooklyn and I'll go work at the lumber yard for two hours. And wow. he did. And yeah, I mean, you saw, and you saw that. Absolutely. And, and that is something that I instill in my own son. How? Well, living I mean, in, you know, uh, California and in show sure, business. Sure. In part, I say to him, um, don't think that I'm giving you anything. You know, I mean, you're, he's 13 now. And I've told him when you're 16, when you're legally able to work, you're getting a job. And just understand that once, you know, I'm here to pay for your education. When that's over, trust me when I tell you for your own good, you get nothing. You need to make your own need to. And that's uh, and you knew because you knew there wasn't any bingo. So you were gonna make your own. <laughs> there was no choice. Uh, and when did you start to realize uh, there's this call to do to to write to create to be an artist? And I know uh, artist is a term you have a hard time self applying, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I'm getting there. I'm working on. You that. should. It's, yeah, it's you taken have me to, a while. Um, you are one. But thank you. Uh, it, it's taken me a while. Um, when I was in college, it started to occur to me that maybe I should think about doing the thing that made me the happiest. You know, that's a, that somebody will tell you, you got to do what, what you love. But that also is kind of a fortune cookie because most people just can't. They just can't, you know, and, and it would be a bad, awful world if everybody just insisted on doing what they loved poorly. Because, you know, you watch people love to well, sing and they can't. We, and they love we, yeah, I mean, we, we sometimes, uh, you and I can ar argue about this, that particular thing, the, the sort of encouraging people. Because I'm, as you did, 
uh, I at a certain point figured out that I had to do this in order to be a happy person, and that right. I, and I ran from it for a long, long time. I was thirty before I wrote my first script and right. embraced it. But what people forget is the second part of it, which you just alluded to. They they take from the message, your message or mine, that uh, you made that decision. Bundled with that is um, you, but you have to work. You, you may have to work the hardest you ever worked to do the thing that makes you happy. Yeah. They want to just uh, the, the problem, and I think it, it's actually we see it more similarly. It's languages. Yeah, go after that in a res- in a responsible way, so you don't hurt the people around you. Right, and. Be ready to kill yourself to do it. And then also be ready to quit. And this is where you and I separate because the truth is this is not a business where you can – I don't think any really artistic pursuit is a business where effort alone will get it done. You can kill yourself and get nowhere because you're not very good. And that's – that. That's listen, that's just part of reality. Um, you know, I didn't – I had no concept of whether I was good or not good. I gave it my a good shot, you know, when I uh, I realized that maybe my wits and my command of the English language and my ability to write uh, and then more importantly, my ability to hear, accept, understand and then rewrite um, was maybe something that was that set me apart. You realize you had a special skill. It seemed to be. It seemed to be special, which was surprising to me, by the way, because I didn't really know who could do what. Right, but you, you see, uh, I don't think that uh, you're you're attaching to the, to to people um, that that they need to have success in order to find commercial success or monetary success. What I found is that people who don't pursue the thing, if they really have what to them feels like a calling, and they don't pursue it in some way. They become they can they can become toxic oh, yeah. to themselves and people around them. Yeah. And I agree with you. Yeah. By the way, it's a numbers game. I mean, clearly, uh, most people who try oh. are going to fail at this, right? Yes. Uh, but like the guy who wrote the King's Speech, I mean, he was seventy-two years old. Yeah, he had had a career prior to that, a sm- but but a career filled with more downs than ups. Sure, but you know, don't get me wrong. I don't equate financial success or commercial success with quality whatsoever. Um, frankly, if you are appreciated by some people routinely, then it's working. However, let's also be clear. Most people in America and certainly for the rest of the world um, simply don't have the resources to be able to pursue something that doesn't at least remunerate them in some way. If they are responsible for anybody, including themselves – then they have to deal with that reality. Uh, if you are lucky enough to be independently wealthy and you love writing and it's, and nobody's really giving you the feedback you want right now, well, that's okay. I mean, pursue it. Love it. I, I remember reading about that guy who wrote, uh, I guess I was just out of college or maybe you were probably in college, um, that guy who wrote that book, um, Snow Falling on Cedars. Mm-hmm. And I remember he had a, worked like two jobs and would get up at four in the morning right. and work right for an hour. So, yeah, there's tremendous sacrifice to make it happen. Yes, uh, of course, yes. I mean, but you I see, was... we tell those stories. What we don't tell the stories are the people that wake up at four in the morning, write for two hours, and do this for ten years, while everyone's telling them this is incompetent. You know, and and those people, you know, sometimes on our podcast, we'll get people uh, asking questions like, "Hey, you know, I I'm, I remember one wo- woman wrote in and said I'm a nurse, 
Yeah. I'm, I'm 45. I've been a nurse and I'm thinking of quitting being a nurse and moving to LA and starting to write. I've never really done it before, but this is my dream. And you know, that's yes, but also maybe just stay a nurse for now and write in the evening because. Yeah. Oh, you know, I remember saying to my dad, I get uh, so scared by these. People. I remember going to my father and saying, uh, big moment, 29, 30 years old. I have a baby. Yeah. Dad, I, I want to, I think I want to be a, a writer. And he right. just looked at me and he said, so right. Yeah. But, and I but said, no, no, wait, no, 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 I was, no, I was, I was, you were, uh, no, let me tell you, I was working and I had a great job yeah. and I was also educated as a lawyer and all that stuff. And I'd made money uh, yes. before that. Yes. But I didn't quit my, my point is I didn't quit my job. Right. I couldn't, qu I, there was no way I could quit my job. Right. I had to work my job. And his point to me was, so, you know, you want to write, get up earlier. Right. And write. Yeah. And that's what I did. Which is true. Um, that is that. I mean, and, and by the way, when I started writing, that's what I did. And I, when I tell, I mean, that was my first job in Los Angeles. I made $20,000 a year and I was basically a file clerk. And then when I would come home in the evening, I would write. Yes. No, I look at those people on America and then we'll get back, I want to get back to your narrative. But when, when I look at those people on American Idol who can't sing, what I do think is all these people around them did them a tremendous disservice by not saying you're not ready. Well, work harder. I think you're still doing them a disservice. Literally, I really do. When you say you're not ready, work harder, you can listen to those people and you know this in your heart. There is no amount of work and, and there is no amount of readiness. You're ne it's ne That's why Simon Cowell, honestly, was the most interesting thing that happened to television in its history because he was the first person who would go on TV and say, you'll never be able to do this. Stop it. Which was remarkable. I, I agree, but but didn't you have? I don't see. I agree with that, um, and I agree that I can look at those people, and you know, I did that. I mean, that was my job for nine years was to evaluate musical talent, and most I would toss seventy demo tapes into the garbage for right. the one that I would listen to all the way through, even right. right? It was so clear that they were bereft. What, what I would have said then was they were bereft of any talent. <laughs> but then, quite a recommendation. We know the stories. Mm -hmm. of the people who were rejected by, all, by Ayn Rand, sure. whether you like the Fountainhead or not, oh, yeah. 40 publishers said to her, this is useless, use it as toilet paper. Every successful person has that story. Every successful person can turn to you and say, here's a list of people that told me I was no good and I would never make it. The problem is that's how Americans evaluate this. We always evaluate it from the perspective of the winners, always. And this is the paradox of winning. You must believe that you can win in order to win, even when people tell you you can't. Also, at the same time, most people can't. But if we live one time, which yeah. you and I both, one thing we agree on. Is there's, this is it. This is the only this thing. This is it, one-way ticket. <laughs> uh, I guess I would rather say to people, all the real. I would rather give them all the real information. Yep. It's really hard. Yep. I see no evidence that you can win at this. If you can do anything else, do something else. If you, but if you feel you can't, then work at it every day as hard as you can. I, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to say that. And, and listen, even if somebody said, listen, um, I love to sing and I know I'm not great yet. I know I'm not Broadway ready, but I love it so much that I'm going to do community theater. I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to take some classes. But in the meantime, I'm going to be a responsible person to myself or the people who rely on me. God bless you. Sing for the rest of your life. It's wonderful. Being creative and, and expressive is an amazing thing. And you I get it. You feel an obligation to say to people, don't ruin your life. A hundred percent because they do. And, and the, I guess I feel yeah. an obligation to, to, to say to people, because of when I start. So you were 20 years old when you figured it out. I was 30 years old and in a response in a life. Mm -hmm. And I know how painful it was not to do it. And so the thing I want to say to people is sure. 
I understand it's almost impossible, but I understand how painful it is to not do it. So give it a shot. It's a, I, I understand yeah. your point. But you're coming at it from the point of view of somebody who has a 100% chance of being successful because you're successful. Do you see what I mean? The people that win the lottery always tell other people to play the lottery. Why shouldn't they? You won. It's winnable. But it's it's a tricky thing. We have a responsibility to be honest with people. And yeah. and listen, one of the best things I ever heard, we did a, a live podcast event and a guy got up and he said, listen, I, I was trained, I, I was educated and trained to be a, a psychotherapist. And I, once I was ready to do it, I said, I don't want, I want to pursue my dream of writing. And I pursued it for 10 years. And you guys gave me the courage to quit, uh, great. which I thought was just so beautiful. And he's going to be a therapist now and help people. And I actually thought that was beautiful because look, in the end, while we romanticize writing, um, it is far more important, far more important to cure people of disease and illness than it is to write movies. God knows that is true. Uh, yeah, I mean, no one's going to argue with that. Yeah. The question, and we can move off this, is uh, when somebody can quit or when the killing of that dream, your guy Bruce, is a dream alive, it don't come true, or is it something worse? Mm. You know, people who walk around with a sense that they gave up sometimes are very difficult to live with and make well, uh, yes, an environment true. at home difficult. So listen, it's thorny and difficult <laughs> issue, by the way. <laughs> now, right? what, what is this about exactly? What are you getting at now, Brian? Here's what I'm is, saying. Is there some trouble? <laughs> no, is that, no, I mean, luckily, as you say, we have both found a way. Yes. You just don't want, listen, you don't want to live with regrets. I believe you should try. And in your 20s is a great time to try when you are on your own and you don't have a wife and kids or a husband and kids and do it. Take that risk with your life. Always take a risk with your life. But then realize if you stick with that risk beyond a point that is reasonable, you are actually now doing the opposite of taking a risk. In a weird way, what you're doing is you're running away from the other risks you must take to make your life pay off. Oh, yeah. You're telling yourself. Yes, you're now telling yourself a story and you're becoming delusional. Uh, no right. question about that. Um, but now let's go back okay, to your, back, your, back to your, your you're in college. Yes. And you realize so I, this is going to make me happy. Right. Because, I mean, it's just interesting to me that that's. You know, you had that thought. I had the thought. And you chased it. I chased it, absolutely. So I'm one of those people. But while chasing it, um, <clears throat> I tried to be as responsible as I could. So I got a job. I didn't sit and say, okay, I'm going to get an apartment and I'm going to write and write and I'm going to, you know. And it's important to note you came out of Princeton. So your job opportunities, you know, if you had wanted to just go after cash quickly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, no, for sure. It wasn't, it, there was an opportunity cost to chasing this. So you know, when I came out to Los Angeles, my, what made me attractive to employers was that I could type. I had typing. That was it. They did, nothing else mattered. Now, my friends were going to Wall Street. My friends were going to Harvard Law. My friends were going to Silicon Valley. And uh, I was making $20,000 a year typing up purchase orders. And yet, I also knew that I was making $20,000 a year at an ad agency that did promos for CBS television. So I was like, okay, so now I've stepped onto the golf course. I'm behind the tee box, yeah. but there's the green. There's the flag in the distance, right? I'm not across the street. I'm here. And then slowly but surely, you begin to get closer and closer. And were you writing during that time? Absolutely. What were you doing? What kind of stuff? How were you making inroads as a writer? So initially, um, at the time, I had a writing partner. And initially, we were we were trying to get a job on a sitcom. There were a lot of sitcoms at the time. It was still, it was 1992, and... 
so there were a lot of opportunities there, but we, we didn't know anyone. We, we finagled ourselves a manager. I can't quite remember how. And we were, you know, just really, you know, writing spec, spec Frazier and a spec Seinfeld and, you know. And comedy was what you, you thought at the time, I'm oh, going to be sure. a comedy writer. Absolutely, because it seemed to me that it was, well, and still, this is the case today. This is inherent. I like making people laugh. I love the feeling of making people laugh. We, and you know me because we're friends, so you've seen me in social situations. It's like that's when I be I get the happiest, you know. Right. It's, it's catnip to you. It is. It's fun, and you go into you stop you stop being conscious of yourself, and it just becomes a thing, and it's fun. And you know, even though I learned over time that in fact comedy is the is the opposite of fun for the people doing it when it's like movies, you know. Once you get it to work, oh, it's the best feeling. Sitting in, the world. in a movie theater and they're rolling in laughter. The best feeling in the world. It's amazing. I, I, there's a couple of test screenings that I hold in my heart as just the most wonderful nights because it worked, you know? Um, so I always wanted to do comedy, I think, in an interesting way, what, where that kind of got me a little bit was that I was partly neglecting other parts of my writerly nature in favor of it. And when you write comedy... I've always said it's like being a left-handed pitcher. They're going to have you pitch the lefties. That's what they do. You could say, well, actually, I want to play third base. Eh, we kind of need you to be the lefty. Yeah. That's what you do, and there's not a lot of you. So just be the lefty. But then, you know, over time, it begins to – and only really now, after 19 years, am I writing things that aren't comedies. And don't you think that – I mean, that came from sort oh, yeah. of the decisions you made after Superhero. Not only this, the, this – that was like part one. There was a, a more recent decision. I, I um, what was it? I sat down with my agent last December, and I said, "Okay, here's the story. I think I am good enough to write these kinds of movies. I know that nobody would ask me to write those kinds of movies. To find those kind of movies. Oh, um, not even fancy Oscar movies. No, just to find what you're talking about. For instance, um, one movie that I ended up writing." And I wasn't focusing on it, but it was the kind of thing like, oh, that would be fun to write. Um, I I just wrote the sequel to Snow White and the Huntsman. Right, great. Right, so it's a you know fantasy, epic, romance, drama. Um, and but you know what comes your way when you write comedies, whether they're PG thirteen or rated R, are more comedies. You know, so of that vein. So when you said to him, I want to write other, I think I can write other movies. Right, and I said, uh, you know, they can be, they can be popcorn movies. They can be franchises. I don't care, but I want to start stretching other muscles. And what I said to him was, and here's the deal. I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I don't care about money. I don't care um, about uh, my quotes or the past or residuals or even if I think the movie's going to be a hit or anything like that. What I care about is do I think I could do a really good job with it and who is it with, right? Who and can I do this? And just get me in the room. I know I have to compete for the job. I'll do – I'll write outlines. I will – I'll engage fully. I will, I will engage fully. I'll take a lot of risks on my own. Happy to bet on myself. And 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 I said, and, and you and I, we're going to do this together. And he was so excited. I remember he said, this is what we love. He said, you guys probably don't realize this, but we sometimes sit around and get a little depressed because sometimes – what we're in is that we're in the incoming call business, right? So guys like you, guys like me, every now and then somebody calls and goes, hey, do they want to do this? Here's what the money is. And they go, okay, yes or no, whatever. 
He said, but this is like, now we actually get to go out and hunt. It's exciting for us. We can all get together and sharpen our knives and start making lists of people and who and how we're going to do this. And we did it. And that's exactly what we did. And, um, but you know, hopefully I will, I mean, so far so good. And uh, right when you, now you'd started to do this after having enormous success in, in three, you know, three big hit movies that you wrote. Yes. And, uh, but had you thought of, was this an end plan for you post superhero or post superhero? It was just like, I have to find a way to first write the kind of comedies I want to write. Right. And put myself in a position to win. Right after Superhero happened, I sat down with Mike Stenson, who... Um, was one of the presidents of Bruckheimer's correct, company. Correct, Bruckheimer's company. And this was still when Bruckheimer and Disney were, you know... And Stenson would say they still are. Well, I, I, don't, Disney, I mean, they are yes, not Stenson Disney, but Chad, they've moved yes. on. Um, and I had, uh, you know, I'd known him for a long time, and... He, um, we talked about this project that he had and I came aboard and it wasn't about the money or anything. It was just about doing something that was more grown up and more interesting and a little bit off the beaten path of what I've been doing. It wasn't, it was, uh, definitely a step. It wasn't like I was jumping across the chasm. I was just moving the needle a little bit this way. Right. And yeah, were you, uh, were you worried at all during this time? Emotionally, I'm worried during all times. Okay, that's like sort of like the there's you know a layer of worry, but I mean, were you were you worried that like okay, people aren't making those kind of movies I've been making any right now? They've stopped suddenly stopped making them. They think of me like X. Uh, Yes, I've made money and I'm a successful person and I put my kids in school. You know, I've taken care of my life. Um, but what? But but coming from the background from which you came and all the rest of it, were you? Were you worried or were you, I mean, did you think on some level like, oh, the ride could end or not? Well, uh, certainly. Um, the, the thing that I kept in the back of my head to calm me down was that before I started doing the scary movies, um, I had kind of already started to do this process. So I had written um, an adaptation of a Philip Dick short story for Bob and Harvey, which I still love. And it was definitely the kind of movie that I would that I saw myself writing, you know, later on. And I also adapted Harvey, the Mary Chase play. Yeah. And it was because those scripts were good that Bob said, I need you to do, it's an emergency. We have to make this movie. That's not how he talks. How does he talk? He's like, hey, man, hey, Mason, here's what's going to happen, all right? You're doing Scary Movie 3, okay? And then we'll get back to Harvey. Wow, man. So that's what he said to you. That's what he said to me. And I said, oh, okay. When all that stuff was done, I went, hey, let's remind ourselves of where we already were. We know we can do this. I don't actually refer to myself in the first plural. Uh, I like I know, to think that you I, do. <laughs> I know I can do this. Trust yourself. You can do this. You can do it. And you know what? It was – there was a little bit of a slow go there. Um, you know, the Disney thing, Mike loved it. But it didn't go forward. Jerry was like, I don't – I don't make comedies. What are we doing? <laughs> and it, was, it was still a kind of comedy. So, but Mike really was very encouraging, which I thought was great. Then I did um, a script for Paramount, and and I definitely did it in my new style. Oh, that did not go well. That did not go well. So then I was like, oh boy, now uh, maybe this. I'm realizing this is a little harder than I thought. And then Todd Phillips called me, and that was great. You know, that, and you had that, made you had worked on. Um, 
one of his movies a little bit with him before. Just for a couple of weeks. Right. But you knew one another. But I knew a him. Bit. I loved him. He was a great guy. And I really admired what he was doing in comedy. I, I admired the way that he was taking the genre very seriously, even while being funny. I admired the way his films looked. I thought he had grown as a filmmaker in a way that was so inspiring to me, you know? Like, okay, so he makes Road Trip, which looks like a comedy, the way we always think of comedies is sort of like, okay, well, it's a comedy, you know? And now I was like, okay, but I just saw Hangover, and that looked great. It played great, and it was a brilliantly written movie. And, you know, he and and, and um, uh, Jeremy Garlick had, did a ton of work on that. Um, a lot of that was their expression along with, with Lucas and more the credited writers. And I just thought he was, and then I saw, um, due date, which I also thought was just terrific. It is terrific. terrific. So, you know, I just thought, wow, it was, it was great that he called when you got that phone call. Yeah. Cause it's interesting. People sometimes, I know when you know that something is that freighted with possibility, Mm -hmm. it's. Uh, it's easy to think you're going to choke and mess it up. Yeah. The meeting, the opportunity. Sure. You know, the same thing happened when I got, Dave and I got the call that we had an opportunity to meet with Steven Soderbergh. You know, we'd never written an Ocean's movie. We were working, mostly we'd made small right. movies. Right, it's a very similar situation. I remember yes. going to the meeting. Right. And I had the real clear thought on the subway there. Like, uh, I felt like... Um, like Charlie Sheen in the Wall Street when he looks in the mirror, life comes down to a few moments. This mm-hmm. is one of them. And uh, and somehow we just when we met, it was immediately apparent this is going to work. But but I I can feel that someone, especially someone of uh, like you were aware of what it could lead to. How did you how did you like when you were you any you knew were you worried at all, nervous, or were you no. focused on how do we tell this story right away? To completely on more than anything, what I was focused on was how can I help you. You know, and I've always felt oh, that's like that, super empowering. You know? yeah. yeah. Like, okay, listen, I didn't, I wasn't there for hangover. I didn't write hangover. Yeah. I didn't help right. you create hangover. I know that you're in a jam here. You're editing due date. You got to do hangover too. You're in a jam. You're in a bind. And, and, and you're calling me and saying, can you help me? And my answer is yes, of course I can help you. One thing that's of enormous comfort is if you're going to do something with Todd Phillips, you have Todd Phillips. Yeah. I mean, he's not, he writes and he's. His taste is very specific and spot on. If he says it's no good, it's no good. And if he says it's good, you know it's going to work because he knows how to shoot it. Um, so I knew that that was going to be okay. And basically what I thought was, listen, uh, you you can help him here. No question you can. Of course you can. And then I did. And I guess I didn't – I knew it was one of those moments where choking was certainly a possibility. I just didn't. You know, no, yeah, and when didn't. when the movie got green lit, yeah, and it was really happening, yeah, did did you have a sense of mission completed, uh, um, no. relief, or I'm I'm back? No, no, I don't believe there is back, and I don't believe there is relief. Back to where there is no. That's the thing. what do you mean that you don't believe there is a back there's, because it can go away at any moment? No, because there's no there's no place of arrival. There's no destination. This is all just a process. It is an endless process. Well, I'm sorry. It is an end full process. It ends. We croak. But there is no point where you say I've arrived. The second you start thinking that you've arrived, you have arrived at the end. Correct. <laughs> yeah, you're done. Bye bye. And for me, this was just an amazing – I look at everything like an experience. Well, yeah. Are you able to – though, uh, I agree completely with that whole idea that you – I remember 
um, the weekend that our first movie opened, um, Dave and I went on a research trip for our second movie. Very right. consciously, weren't here when the movie opened. We we're Friday night, I guess we were here, but Saturday, we went on a research trip to a place where nobody knew us, where we wanted to figure something out, and we consciously said, like, we're going to bask in what good or bad. We're not going to be a part of the result at all because right. we have no role in it. We're going to go and start. No, right? We're going to go yeah. and start the next thing. It's not if you are a screenwriter and you think you're in an outcome business, you're just doing the wrong job. I think the studios are in an outcome business, and I think maybe producers are in an outcome business, but we're in a process business. Uh, it's entirely about the process. Once it's locked, pictures locked, and you know now you're into sound mixing, um, you need to now look ahead. The movie coming out is f- almost for everybody else in a weird way. But are you able to have so, – but w- within that, though, are you able to give yourself permission to have moments – of joy and relief in it. I'm trying. And it's something I'm really working on. I, I've had a problem with that in the past of being able to enjoy things, to um, not only failing to appreciate or enjoy success of any kind or even accomplishment, let's call it, but also um, a weird desire to seek out um, disapproval. And, you know, I, I'm really working on that these days. Well, yeah, I want to talk about that because um, – when, you know, I know one of the test screenings you're talking about that went so incredibly well and everybody laughed was Identity Thief. Yeah, went great. And and I think one of the most fascinating podcast episodes I've ever heard, not that the podcast is always fascinating, <laughs> Craig. It's, it's rarely for me it is. <laughs> but uh, was the one after you'd read the reviews. Right. And I could not for the life of me understand <laughs> why you lived through this test screening where you saw the movie was going to be a massive hit yeah. because it gave people joy. Yes. Then people got massive amounts of joy from it when it was released in movie theaters. That's right. They went to it in droves. Yes. Your career did change again because um, Hangover, it's you and Todd and sure. Identity Thief was you. Right. Right. Uh, a script that was... Uh, whatever was there before was not there and you created you know you made this movie i guess you share story credit with somebody on well, it well the the gentleman who wrote the spec jerry eaton wrote a spec script so uh but then you then you know it was really your script well i had sole screenplay credit yeah so uh and it was your thing you yeah. know you were gonna um i know finances weren't a worry for you but you were gonna make a tremendous amount of money and you had a tremendous amount of joy that you'd given people in theory this is all correct <laughs> and then you dove into reading crappy reviews yeah and then and what was fascinating about the podcast was it that you said i read these reviews and these guys are idiots mm. and people should find this because it was you uh beating yourself about the the chest and head for not being good enough well, no, that's annoyed not quite that it accurate. bothered you. You no, said you were annoyed that uh, it bothered you, and that you respected these people and agreed with them some of the time. No, no, I don't. Tell res- me, I don't respect critics at all. Okay, I, good. I don't know how you got that from that. I, I don't understand why their job is even a job. Um, it, this, of course, will not help me get better reviews. It's like, oh, every time we talk about critics, I realize, oh, this is just a vicious cycle. But, um, what I said, what I was trying to share was. Regardless of what we think about critics, and I very studiously avoided criticizing the critics in that podcast. Yeah, that, yes. What I said was this is something that occurs. You put yourself out there and occasionally you get publicly excoriated for it. You did say it hurt though. Oh, for Which sure. Which if you thought their, their opinions were invalid, it wouldn't hurt. Uh, this is where uh, – what I've come to understand is 
that validity is a function of logical analysis. Something is or is not valid, and we can decide that on the basis of our frontal lobe, but hurt, pain, humiliation, shame, th these are, this is underneath that. Th that's an emotion. And separating the emotion from some sort of logical meaning is part of my process here, what I'm coming around to. But you can still be very hurt even while you're saying, but none of that is actually true or relevant. You can still feel shame when you read something about you like that. Well, you can if you're wired in a way that you're more comfortable in a place of shame and disappointment than you are in the other place. Yes. And I think also what ends up happening is it starts to reveal that there's a certain kind of armor that comes with self-respect and self-esteem. And if you don't have it, you need to ask what you can do to provide it for yourself. You need to start learning how to soothe yourself, essentially, because that's what these – I mean, listen, I know um, and really admire writers who truly say, I don't read the reviews and I don't care. I've never met – by the way, I've never met any screenwriter who ever said, I read the reviews carefully and I think they're important and they're an important part of what I do and they affect how I write. I've never met one. Not one. I read them all. But do you think they're an important part of your process? And I, what you... No, not in terms of my process. Right. So... Um, but I read them all. and uh, But I think there are people who could take you, – you, the one thing I, I – it's not that I disagree, but there is sort of a – you can – I think that you can learn, and it's a process for all of us and something I try to do, to give – instead of letting the meaning just happen, you can give things meaning. That would be good. That's and healthy. That, that you can yes. give. So a meaning one could take from it is look at this. I wrote a movie that that um, is culturally important enough that all these people are writing about it. <laughs> See, that's I, that's I, an impact. I'm saying one good. can yeah. change the the internal. Yes. You know, we think we can't, but we can. You can. You're right. Shift our self talk because in that way our self talk affects well, us. Self talk. So what you're talking about is what I'm talking about. That notion of how do I soothe myself in this regard. You know, because the truth is what you can't do is run away from what you did. I sat in a theater. I watched them laugh. I went and saw them show up. They email me. They keep renting the movie. And you know what your intention was with the movie. That's right. And, and I you achieved, it. you hit the target. I know that the movie, look, there are problems with the movie, just as there are problems with almost every movie. And I can see what they are. And I know why they occurred. And I know that they aren't in line with my intention. But, but by and large, but, I'm happy with the movie. But, right. But see, some of the movies that I've worked on... Um, particularly the last one that we directed, I knew that the critics um, were going to be incredibly important to whether the movie would have any... That's different and And so I was um, incredibly at risk. Right. Not emotionally in terms of like, oh, they don't like me. But I was incredibly at risk if you know that a movie you're making isn't commercial. Right. Uh, and will only be seen if the critics like it. You're very, you are vulnerable to their verdict. And that, I would imagine, in a weird way, would almost be comforting. Like, you can compartmentalize it like, okay, this is a jury. I don't have to agree or disagree. All I know is they're going to tell me I'm innocent or guilty. And yeah, and I mean, I remember when the review came out, was that was good, the one that mattered. My, I told this before, but my son, like, uh, woke me up just because he saw it wow, online. That's nice. And he was like, well, you're going to be okay, Dad. Because I thought I was hiding it. But, he was like, you're going to be okay. Oh, we can't hide anything. And then you do the but, – but, but you've had the experience of writing a movie, and then they come and they and they beat you up. Oh God, of course. But I would say, you know, I, there's a lot of things. I know when something works or it doesn't work. I'm at the point now. I just want them to understand what we were trying to do. That I do. I'm. I still am engaged in that 
um, yeah. a little bit, which is I, I, I hope that uh, and so there, there are critics that I care that I do read every you know I read them every every day that they write. Yeah. And wow. Uh, because a few of them, I think, are, are bright. Yeah, who cares? Yeah, I'm interested. So they're bright. Uh, I mean, I'm interested in it, but I'm divorced from it emotionally. Is well, what okay, I was say. well, that's the thing. I uh, that That's great. And that's a kind of sociopathy that I think is super valuable Thank you. for you. Yeah, that's why I'm really <laughs> glad that for... I can. It's a perfect place in which to put my sociopathy. <laughs> right, exactly. Not at home and not with my friends. Uh, I, I put mine into, into obviously, into murder. Um, I've never been caught. And I know you don't mean that metaphorically. No, no, no. I kill. But... Um, you know, for me, was, that's federal just because we're in New York and you live in L.A. They can still get you for that. That's a federal thing now. Well, it can be if you've done it across state no, lines. No, what are you kidding? That's too hard. Oh, only there. Well, first of all, how do you kill somebody over state lines? You take them to four corners and you kill them the, right on the edge? Elwood show the bridge there. It's actually over two different countries. Uh, I could you can drag a body. What you don't do is ever transport a body that ever or by the way, go to a different state. No, you kill somebody in this state. You go to another state. You kill them there. Two separate jurors. What you don't know about murder is astonishing. Thank you. I got to tell you. So, but back to the conversation okay. you were saying about uh, critics. Look, critics don't even deserve this much time, frankly. I, I just, it's really but more But what I'm more about... interested in is why you felt the need to react to it and why it tweaked you in some way. I wanted to share uh, a pain that I know a lot of people had. And I, that's got, I've gotten more feedback from our colleagues on that podcast than on any other because... While some of us don't have an emotional response, some of us do. And and some of us do experience that pain, and it's very, very difficult. And um, being able to say, okay, um, no one never talks about this publicly because it's, it's, it's leading with your weakness. I'm going to do it. I'm just going to do it and talk about it publicly. This is something that we go through, and it's very difficult, and it's – it's part of the experience of doing what we do. And in doing so, I think, frankly, I finally did exercise a lot of the demons that led me to Good. be in a position where I would feel so hurt. I mean, I thought it was incredibly cool and brave. And I just felt I remember feeling bad for you. You know, when when Rounders first came out, the the week back then, um, Newsday, Newsweek and Time, they ran their reviews one week before the re- review date. For everybody mm-hmm. else, somehow that happened with that movie. Okay, something got messed up on the. <laughs> uh, and both reviews were incredibly negative and singled Dave and me out and our screenplay out as being weak. They, yeah, they often and do single out. The when screen. when that and they got wrong stuff like what movies inspired. They just guessed about a bunch of stuff and it was wrong. And I remember reading uh, those reviews mm-hmm. and. Uh, curling up into a ball on the floor. Oh. They destroyed me. Okay, then, well, there that you was go. 20, no, that was 20 years ago, right? But you right? had the experience. I'm saying, but from that moment, yes. when I woke up the next day, mm-hmm. it was gone. I don't know how or why, but I woke up the next day and something calcified. Mm-hmm. And I went, I'm still here. Um, I still have my wife. That's and awesome. Kid. And I was then, and, and then, you know, the luck that then a lot of people liked it, it made me go like, okay, th- they're going to vote um, and their vote's going to maybe matter in a certain way, but it's not going to ever matter internally. And somehow I, that that happened to me, and I, I hope it's now where you live. I, I don't. We'll find out. All I can say is that you should you should be very grateful for that. And and I may be more sensitive than some. I know comedy is always a tough one because, I mean, there was a review recently of a comedy, and the guy, the reviewer said. Making people laugh is easy, 
that's not what makes comedies good. What makes comedies good is blah, 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 blah. And I thought, wow, do it. Just do it, buddy. Make people laugh. Go ahead. But, you you know, but there's it's like yeah. that's the problem is that, you know, I mean, it's not like the the Venn diagram of funny and critic. There's not a lot of overlap there. And and particularly for certain kinds of comedies, there's not a lot of overlap. No, very few. I mean, Lester Bangs was a very funny music critic, but there are very few. Yeah. I agree with you. Very few genuinely funny, uh, critical. Right. And, and of course, also, you see that as time goes on. Uh, things are just simply reevaluated, you know. Um, but for me, I don't really. I realized, even at the time that it was going on, that this had nothing to do with them. This was really about me and a well, certain that, amount of that, growth. Because that—that's what I wonder about, and that's why it's to me significant. Is yeah. so I understand now how you process the moment of kind of darkness, which was like, okay, I'm going to retool and refit. I'm going to become who I need to be, and I and you had the. You kind of had the inner resources to say, I was this, I can become this again. But then also it seems like in success, the way you've avoided becoming, you know, one of the tools you used to avoid getting carried away with yourself also was to find ballast somehow, uh, which maybe these critics... The emotional thing. I just wonder. I'd prefer how you to haven't... not have them. Frankly, I, I don't really. They're they're not inspiring me. Frankly, in any way, to to do better work or to work harder. I don't. I don't do anything. They don't exist for me except for the weekend. That's it. It's like one weekend sure. every couple of years. They're suddenly there again. And so, in in what way has the the sort of new place that you've come to affected you? emotionally are you happier person yes. are you you are yes uh, i think that over the last year i have started to entertain the notion that maybe some of the very smart people that i admire a lot who tell me i'm good aren't completely full of it that just maybe i am and being saying that you're good is not the same thing as saying i'm as good as i need to be or as i'm good as i'm ever going to be or i have to stop working hard or i can't get better there's no – it does not cost you anything. It is not a lack of vigilance. It is not arrogance. It's not resting on your laurels. It's just allowing that maybe, yeah, you can actually do this okay. You no, know? I think that's great because you used to – whenever somebody would take a shot at you online, uh, you would try to give advice to some lunatic. <laughs> uh, you would always spend some time saying, I'm not holding myself – you know, I'm someone who does this for a living, but I'm not holding myself out as as good as these people. And I always felt like, right. why is Craig doing that? Well, in part, I think because I I understand the way the world works. I understand perception. And the truth is, it doesn't matter what I think of myself and what I know I'm capable sure. of doing until you do it. That's right. Until people come to you and say, I respect the following things. Then, So I know in certain cases, certain kinds of movies for certain audiences, they have. In other ways, they haven't. If I'm talking to somebody who wants to write a drama, I think I have relevant advice for them, particularly now more than ever. But I also know that I haven't done it. There's no proof there, and I haven't earned the right to sort of say, and you should well, therefore... I mean, know. you're screwed now because, um, you know, you gave... I've said this publicly before, but this show, Billions, that we're doing for Showtime, I mean, you gave us the best notes we've ever gotten. You gave us two Thank and a half you. hours of your time. But the negative result that everything has unintended consequences <laughs> is that we've told all our friends who write dramas, <laughs> and guess. a lot of them are your friends as yes. well, and so yeah. that's a lot of work for you. It, now. Well, no, it's a joy. I mean, listen, we have a mutual friend who's been nominated for a couple of Oscars, I believe, and and it, and he asked me to read his screenplay, and I sat with him and did the same thing with him, and 
it's a joy, frankly, for me. I, in particular, it's a joy because I like talking to writers about a script that needs to be fixed or worked on, but in a way that is comforting. Oh, this is a great point, and I think it applies to artists, anyone in any endeavor, not just artists, people getting their review from their boss. One thing that professionals do that amateurs don't, and one of the things that keeps you an amateur, mm-hmm. is to not um, listen uh, with open ears to constructive criticism. Right. That doesn't mean you have to internalize all of it and think that you're worthless right. and that it's a judgment on you. Right. But that if you ask somebody for feedback uh, and they're giving it to you, take all the time you can to understand their point of view and to get all of it so later you can decide what's valid and what's not. That's correct. And and frankly, that's why we need to do this for each other because only we understand. Listen, again, to just touch on critics again, what they'll do is they'll they watch a movie and then they have their own opinions as a consumer about what was wrong in the creation of it. But they don't create anything. They're consumers. We create, so therefore, we, when we consume, we consume in a different way. We consume as people who also understand how the meal was put together. And, you know, there's a, a friend of mine. He's a surgeon. He's a, a cardiothoracic surgeon. And I said, what happens, like, when you're doing surgery and you're there with a bunch of guys, and when you make a mistake, what do you go, oops or something? And he said, no, we actually have a word we use. If we make a mistake... We point to the mistake and we say there and somebody goes, okay. And they just get in there. Right. Yeah. And what I loved about that was the understanding, the acknowledgement, Hey, we're all professionals. We're all very good at what we do. We are not perfect. And since we understand that it's safer to say there, if I say, if I look at your script and I go there, that's not, that's not me saying you're no good. You're a bad writer. You should stop that. Right. Because we understand what it means to do this. Oh, 100%. It's the difference also between us and executives. And 100%. So you have to choose. And the boss review thing maybe isn't a great analogy because not all every boss has actually the right answers and they might not be correct. Right. But for your professional advancement, you probably have to find a way to, um, to listen and take something from it. But uh, we choose carefully who we expose that stuff to when it's raw. Mm-hmm. And you, one has to be careful with it. But then when, when you do it, you have to be so, I think, like so open to that moment of there, there, and be to to then lift, you know, lift the whole thing. You you have to have the self regard to be able to say, I don't need to figure everything else, figure out everything on my own. That I am not a lesser person if someone gives me help, which is another lesson I've had to learn over the years. Scott Frank, years ago, said to me, uh, I need more help than any other writer I know. Yeah, he always talks about get produce, getting producers in help. early. I need help. I need help. I need help. I am constantly – I I ask for so much help that I drive everyone around me crazy. And I thought, oh my, well, this is amazing, you know, that that asking somebody for help, oh my God, it's not a sign of weakness. It's actually a sign of strength. That's great. Oh, I love this. So – and that changed the way you thought about something. Changed the way I thought about asking for help. <laughs> right. I'm saying it, it changed yeah. what you did. Absolutely. So yes. I, I'm really interested in this um, about you, yes. which is you're an excellent combatant. <laughs> and you love being right more than maybe anybody I've ever met in well, my life, except it, some two-year-olds. It's, listen, I, I, it just happens a lot. It's not my fault. But um, you have the ability. So I was talking to this one professional poker player, and the sort of most of the poker books will say, hey, uh, once you make a – once you make – 
a judgment on what another guy has in his hand. You stick to that judgment to play the hand out and you make your decision. I was talking to this top poker player, Eric Seidel, and I asked him, and he said, no, 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 no. You, and he's like one more World Series braces than anyone with two people. He said, no, no, no. I sit there and all I want is to take in new information. Mm-hmm. I'm firm in my belief until new information changes it. And you have a great ability to be arguing your point and be certain and strident. Mm-hmm. But how did you learn to, at the same time, be open to new information that will then shift your opinion? You've got it backwards, actually. So, yeah, tell me. The reason that I'm strident about what I believe is because I got there by being open. I think a lot of people get to their ideas or their opinions through, uh, uh, frankly, a lot of mysterious, irrational behavior and sure. thinking. They are, they, they are raised in a tradition, a faith, an ideology, and they then filter everything through that lens. I am a man with no country in that regard. I have no allegiance to any roster of ideas of any kind. I frankly, that's what kind of makes me feel like an alien on this planet because I, you say, well, are you a liberal or a conservative? Are you a Democrat or a Republican? Are you this or that? I'm none of those things. I can't, I, 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 this, yes, that, no, subtly, maybe a little bit of that, a little bit of this. And I, I approach that with in all everything. So when I say something with passion and belief, it's because I've been a scientist about it. Now, a good scientist can be passionate and advocational. And then suddenly new evidence emerges and they must incorporate it. They are compelled to incorporate it. Right. So, But it's a practice for you. In other words, it's something that you're conscious of. You've built an approach. It, or is it instinctive? It, it, to me, this is, I've always been this way. Like I never – I mean I've never believed in God. Right. <laughs> ever. It never once made sense to me. Um, I, ne- I didn't really talk about it. You know, I, I had a bar mitzvah. I studied. I was interested. Congra- congratulations. In, yeah, yeah, I know. Did hey, you do well? Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? You crushed it? Very accomplishment-oriented. Great. Um, but uh, it's just something I never – I was waiting, waiting. And I still am, by the way. If I experience something that makes me think, oh, my God, there is a God, I still won't believe there's a God, but I will talk about it with other people and evaluate it to make sure that I didn't have a stroke or a hallucination. Um, but, but I'm open to it. I'm open to everything. It's just I've always been a – the best word for me, frankly, is skeptic, not cynic. I understand. Skeptic. Right. And so uh, how Skeptical do you, about my career, my, my writing. Yeah. You're, prosecu- you're always kind of like prosecuting the situation to find the, the – prosecute the situation vigorously. I prosecute you. I prosecute myself. I prosecute what we're saying, the idea. Um, that's one of the reasons why I think I did well in – comedy because comedy, unlike other uh, movie pursuits, movie genres, has to be prosecutorial. Are they laughing? Why aren't they laughing? This isn't good enough to be in the movie. We could make it better, but in the end, we must be scientists. Now, you love getting laughs. You love getting laughs in a big group. You like speaking in front of groups. Why didn't you ever perform stand-up? You know, that's a kind of thing that always... um, I I admire stand-ups I, I look at them like I look at really great magicians. I just can't believe they, they do what they do, and it's so good. Um, the guys that I really love listening to um, lately, I you know Hannibal Burris is my favorite uh, lately. Hannibal's just, hilarious. Like, incredible. Um, Maria Bamford, um, who's channeling Hannibal, some other – Hannibal you know, told me he'll do this podcast, and, uh, and I said, like, when? And he was, later. Later. <laughs> he'll do it. <laughs> later. Later. In a little so, while. So funny. Later. 
Patton Oswald always, always killed me. But I think part of what I love, uh, just this is my makeup, what I like, what I enjoy is of the moment. Yeah. I don't, it, it is not, I don't want to practice that and repeat it and hone it and have it become a little bit of a magic trick, you know, that, it, because the, I feel that way about the movies too. Like, so we make a movie, we show it the first time it kills and it's great in a theater is so great. But then the second time you do it, cause you're trying little things, you almost begin to feel contempt for the crowd. Like, Oh, they're going to laugh in huh. two seconds. Ah, got him again. Ha ha. And that part I don't like so much. And I feel like, I, I think inherently I always felt like stand up comedy to me was a little too much of a rehearsed act i get it you want the you like the magic in the moment the moment of creation the inspiration and that's not to say that that's i mean better i mean these guys no, it's, i used to feel that way Penn gillette in one of his books talks about how our generation of people put such a primacy on hey is he improving? is it new has he changed the act louis throwing out the act right and Penn says you know something happens to me like the vaudevillians when i've said the same thing for 50 years now we put new things in all the time but he said, there are certain cornerstones of my act that I've uh, I've done for 15 years. Right. And the patter is so ingrained that it's the only time I can be doing that patter, and that's when I'm really seeing you. Mm. And I've got it. I own it in such a way. And he's like, and it's a long time, boring, boring time to get there. Right. To get all to the way transcend. to the other side of it, uh, which is what some of the comedians will talk about, too. Like, you know, when they've had this thing in their act for so long... It's, you you it's, don't have yeah. that desire. You're saying you. I, you I didn't. It didn't feel comfortable to me um, at all. But um, I have nothing but just remarkable admiration for people that do that. It's a very difficult job, and 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 you know, I'm and frankly, I don't think that I would. I don't really think the way that I'm funny would would work on stage anyway. You've never regret. You've never thought to yourself, "I wish I'd tried it." Uh, no, not at all. That's not. I much rather. I, I my, all my regrets are about not singing professionally. That's my. That's my. We sense. don't. We don't regret that though. You would. Regret we, no, it. we don't. You would. If you knew. This is the walking through the walls. See, you're ready to walk through walls. No, Put just, the wall in it's front just of you. A fact. I know no, you're a good singer. It's maddening that you are also a good singer. Um, many, many tools. You're a five tool player. We haven't talked baseball at all. You're a baseball fanatic, but baseball. I just have a few yes. additional questions, and I'll let you uh, out of here. No, I don't need to go. Okay, good. I still only <laughs> I have a few more. I, when questions. people say I'll let you go, I was like, you don't have to let me go. Oh, I'll out. I call, I call, I call the bluff. We can, I call the bluff every there's time. There's no bluff. I'll stay yeah. as long as you want. No, no, tell me. Um, okay, then I'll, I'll ask all of it. Yeah. Uh, you seem at home in these various different versions or iterations of yourself, in case you didn't know what versions was. I wanted to add iterations. Iterations Figuring is the you'll know word, one of the. I figured yeah. you'd know one of the two I words. I only know harder words. Yeah. Well, Princeton and sort of the way you carry yourself, you've forgotten a lot of the other words now. Just forgotten. So I just wanted to give you both. Um, Thank you. But, you know, you're a filmmaker, producer, writer. You're somebody who teaches other writers you speak a lot you're somebody that um that professional working writers look to as uh, a unifier uh, a unifying voice at times um and your friends come to you for notes and and counsel both about their work and about um a career stuff uh and it's a big group of people you know yes. uh you seem to manage that all um with a lot of uh, equanimity it, how do you think about unifying all those roles and managing just practically managing your time, your day, your, your life. I never think about managing my time or my day or my life. Uh, I know 
occasionally someone will say, how do you get all this done? And I always feel guilty because I think I actually don't get that much done during the day. I mean, you know, people say, well, you do the podcast. Okay, that's an hour a week. Yeah. Oh, you, you know, you give friends notes. Oh, that was two hours, one week. It's not every week, you know. Um, the truth is, you know, we actually, when I look at people who work, you know, 15-hour shifts at a hospital, you know, nurses. Sure. They have problems. Doing I guess it's less the day. time management, but it's more the unif to me that you wear a lot of hats. And Yeah, but that doesn't require more time. It just requires an ability to sort of. Does all that stuff engage? Are you, are you oh, engaged yeah. by all of it? Absolutely. And do you see, feel like it's all part of the same whole? I don't know. I think it's funny that you ask that. I actually feel sometimes a little schizophrenic in the old sense of the term. Yeah. That, you know? I, yeah. A little fractured because there are parts. TV schizophrenic. TV schizophrenic. Civil. Civil schizophrenic. <laughs> Precisely. Um you know, this is not. I just want to throw some references that none of the audience that like only if you were born in nineteen. I know between sixty five and seventy five. Huge Sally Field fan. Um, I I do feel like there are, there there are parts of me that don't integrate. You know, there's a certain lawyerly part of me that yeah. that really um, I liked serving on the on the board of the Writers Guild and I under liked getting to issues of the contract and I still do that. In, uh, in regard to our credits rules, which we've made a lot of changes to over the years. So there's this lawyerly part of me. There's like a, a scientist part of me that we've, you know, we've touched on. I'm, I get very, I still, I'm fascinated by by um, medical science. And then there's the funny, the funny writer. And then there's the kind of the serious, more serious writer. But then also, you know, then I'm just daddy, and then I'm a husband, and and then when it's just me and the dog alone, I'm 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 that guy with the dog. <laughs> you right. know, I, I I'm not sure that. That that's a problem, really. That that I I have different. I feel like there's a bunch of different me's, different modal, different modalities in a way. Yeah, and I like that actually. I feel like I think everybody's like that. Uh, there's no way to be the same person all the time. You should be able to feed different interests and and do them so wholly that that you do feel different. And do you think all those things become accretive to you? And do they help the writing, or is it just all so separate? I don't know. I, 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 I mean, do you still think of yourself other than the, the family stuff as a writer first? Well, I'm, I'm a, professionally, I'm a writer. Sometimes I get a little antsy when people say, well, I'm a writer. Sure. They, well, uh, meaning that that's it, you know, that's your vocation and that's an important part of my life. Yeah. In the end, that will have, people will look back and say, well, this was your life's work. These are the things you did. But what you do professionally and vocationally is one aspect of yourself. Another aspect is who have you helped? Who have you touched? Who have you supported? Who comes to you for help? Who have you loved and who loves you? All, yes, crucial stuff. And so, you know, like, I, yes, I am a writer and I'm a father and a husband and a friend. I'm all the, those things are just as important to me. And frankly, there are times when they're way more interesting than, you know, okay, well, it's week two of a weekly fixing, you know, some movie writing. Oh, we've well, got dialogue fixes in the third act. Um, it's much more fun, you know, being the dog walker that week, frankly. So. All right, that all that all makes sense to me. I still think you get a tremendous amount done. It, it does make sense that uh, to me, it seems like you take on you've taken on the role of. Oh, you're looking at the clock. You have to go. It does seem to me that you're taking on the role. I just got bored during that yeah, question. You're taking on the role of. You've taken it on the mantle of a certain kind of advocate for and coach for writers. Yes. And why is that important to you? I, as a scientist, 
um, and as uh, and in this, I guess in this regard, well, let's say social scientist. I have had 19 years of empirical study time. How we behave professionally in regard to ourselves, how we are treated, what works strategically, what doesn't work strategically, how we can advance our own personal cause, how we can defend our work, how we can go down the wrong path and make mistakes. And all of that stuff is information that I feel strongly must be shared because uh, the people whose interests may run counter to ours do not want us to know any of it. And in this case, knowledge is power. There are things, lessons learned that we must share amongst each other. I feel it's important. We, it's, we, get, we get the raw end far too often for us to not be scientific about this. But you, and you've taken that very far in that you've built a network of screenwriters that you've connected via email chains for a very long time. Yeah. You've, uh, you know, you'll meet somebody and bring them in and introduce them to a whole bunch of other writers and share information and email each other. And in, in doing that, in building a community and in, in connecting screenwriters in a way that they've never been connected before, and I'm talking about a lot working screenwriters. That's right. How conscious were you that, hey, I'm doing this and, and what was the, the in, in this relationship, it's you're learning as much as you're giving. 100%. What, what, what was sort of behind that? Was it this stuff? Was it also a need to know if your experiences were consonant with other people's? I think it was just a, a natural gravitation towards people who were not only doing what I did, but experiencing the same ups and downs that I experienced. There's just a natural desire. If you're a firefighter, you want to talk to other firefighters, you know? Well, what's it like over by, by, you know, hook and ladder eight? You know, I can tell you what it's like over here. Oh, really? Oh, right. no, no, no. We don't do that over here. You know what you should do. It's just natural. And it's just as natural for them with the capital T to not want that to happen. And they have always been good about keeping us separate and informing us that, in fact, we were all against each other and in competition. Right. And you've had a mission, it seems like, to connect all of us so that when we are all now um, – I guess there's a, a big group of, of us who communicate uh, online. Yes. Um, and so we're all rooting for each other's movies and shows. And, I, and to me, the effect it's had is to um, inspire everybody to do their to do better work. And I don't know if that's like just um, sort of something that happened out of it or if that was in any way conscious on your it part. It wasn't that that wasn't conscious. But I think you're right that when you're. When all you care about is pleasing your whatever your own goal, whatever your own sense of what good is, but also what their sense of good is, then, you know, you're limited in some way. But to say, okay, well, now I'm friends with somebody that did something I love. Yeah. I would like to impress that person. Sure. She's amazing. Wouldn't it be great if she thought this were great? That's That does start to happen. We are better at this, I think, frankly, than the people that hire us. And a lot of them are good. A bunch of them are not good. But but I always feel like, okay, but we're better at it because we know what it takes. So why wouldn't I want somebody that I trust and, and think is terrific to read this and say, well, what do you think about this? Oh, great. It's a great resource, whether it's me sending you a script or you sending me a script and a statement that right. you've written or other people, uh, you know, someone making a TV deal and then knowing, oh, I can ask – uh, I can ask yeah. Dan Weiss. The, well, the business because, part of it, right? Right. Uh, oh, Craig introduced me to Dan Weiss. I can ask him 
yeah. uh, something about uh, how Game of Thrones came together. And it's uh, I agree with you that they didn't that the industry didn't do anything to make that happen. They don't want. Why and, would they want you to know what I got? Why would they want me to know something you got? Right. And, we, and by the way, it's not. I don't want people to think that we all sit around comparing what we get paid. It's never that's that. That's the very. But can I say yeah. that's the very least it's of it? It's the least of it. The most of it is, um, hey, this guy is telling me, or this executive woman is telling me, um, X about the status of this project. Right. Uh, is that person honest? Right. Exactly. What experience did you have? I know that you worked on this two scripts ago. Now they're asking me to work on it, and what they're saying is this: What's your? And so you, know, you have this. You've had this mission. And I think it's grown. And the podcast that you do, because we started talking about this idea that not everyone has the tools right. to be uh, an artist. Yes, perhaps. that's true, yes. And yet you're out there on panels and podcasts lighting the path for people. <laughs> and so who are you talking to? I'm talking to the ones that are good and they're going to make it. Those are the only people I talk to. Now, you can't, you don't know who they are, so you have to talk to everybody. But I've always said, like, okay... Listen, if you're bad, nothing, none of this matters unless you're just listening to it for entertainment. If you don't have what it takes, and a lot of people don't, uh, then, you know, this is, then either this is just for personal hobby's sake, which is fine, as long as you know that, or it's for entertainment's sake. But really, more than anything, what I would love is if 0.1% of our listeners, but 95% of the ones that end up making it, get something out of it, then I'm happy. Do you know what I mean? I do. I guess I take, you know, um, when I talk to writers and then later somebody says to me, I finished something because something you said made me want to finish it. Or I'd quit and I started again and I, I feel good because I've worked. That gives me a tremendous amount of satisfaction. And Slightly, that. It, that, I'm different. I, I, I Listen, I don't. Because uh, it's pro for me, I'm like, pr there's a certain part of that that's just process and about a practice because, you know, I'm someone who meditates and journals right. and like, because I was a blocked, I think, I, I think the difference is you were never a blocked writer and I was a blocked writer. So because I was blocked, I was somebody who couldn't work until I was 30, until I right. found a way to break through thinking I could never do it. Right. My mission is to help people find out if they can do it. Well, does that make any it, sense? It does. And the truth is that it's probably there are, we can't be everything to everybody. It's good that you're there and I'm here, you know, so maybe I'm I like agree. the dad and you're the mom, the sweet, sweet ass mom. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Well, um, yeah. Yeah. But you're, but look, making people feel good. There is value to that. There is also value to, um, uh, I guess providing a sense of, maybe more what I would call tools and discipline and and a dose of reality. We need both. Yeah. I want to give people permission to do the work. That's my thing. Like, and I, that's, and, 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 by the I, way, and I want to give people permission to quit. Right. Fair enough. By yeah. the way, both. Yes, both are important. Are really essential. <laughs> that's right. Because uh, uh, both are essential and, um, and useful. And I, I think the truth is we both would look at the same person and have the exact same judgment. No question. Almost almost 100% of the time. 100%. Um, no we question. would know. We'd... And then our prescription might be different. I don't think so. No, See, right, when, uh, I, when right. I meet somebody, yes. when I read something. Sure, me too. I, then I go, okay, now I'm about taking care of your feelings. I don't need to tell you how to be good or, or disciplined or anything. You, that's covered. 
So now it's about how do you emotionally navigate what is coming your way because you don't understand that it's a tidal wave made up of razor blades and, and medical sharps that's heading your way and you don't know. So you're going to need to figure out how to, how to navigate. Yeah. Then I become you. Right. Yes. And, and I, bec- and that's true. And I become you because I can't tell you how many times I've, you know, you try not to read someone's script, but once somebody hands me their script, mm. I then feel an incredible obligation to be honest. Oh. Well, once they hand me the screenplay, oh, sure. the only difference is my judgment is only um, on that screenplay. Right. I would never say to somebody, you can't do this because I don't think that I know. Yes, you do. Uh, yes, you I do. think I know 98% of the time. Okay, well, okay so that, that there's your answer. No. When you say I, 98% of the time is a lot. But yes, but I have to allow for the fact that there are people who rejected Bruce Springsteen. And there are people I who know, said... But you wouldn't have. <laughs> no, but there are but there are people who would have. You, you wouldn't have. Lastly, yes. uh, why do you think... And then this is a very in-the-weed sort of writer-to-writer question, but um, you're out there really... Um, um, uh, celebrating the contribution that the screenwriter makes to motion pictures. Yes. Why do you think the auteur theory is still so prevalent? And why do you think screenwriters... It's two questions that I have to ask together. Why do you think screenwriters are, are so devalued mm-hmm. by both the general public and within in the industry? And how do you feel... When you go in and rewrite people, you know, do you feel that the culture of screenwriters rewriting other screenwriters, although it's necessary often, does it, does it, uh, does it perpetuate this idea? Okay. Multiple parts to that question. I feel like Rafe finds, I'll take the, uh, third, third part first. Um, okay. First of all, the auteur theory, um, uh, um, it persists because of film critics and film academics who I think find it useful for what they do. Um, it helps focus what they, it, it essentially, it makes it possible for them to do what they do. If they were to talk about the way movies are actually made, they would quickly realize that it's, it's not really a science that you can wrap your mind, your mind or hands around. It's very difficult to publish a book about the 15 people that made something happen. Yeah. It's just not sexy. It's not sexy. It's not academic. And therefore they essentially, have embraced what we know to be nonsense because it's convenient for them. They also don't know it's nonsense because they don't actually know how movies are so made. So they don't know that they're... Uh, they don't know they're wrong. <laughs> ...perpetuating a, a false... No. ...a falsity. They have no clue. They have no clue. They don't understand not only that it's not correct, but that it's wildly inaccurate. And then do you think it's um, um, it's just something that the, the business can... Um, sort of hold on to? Okay. The business doesn't care. When you say that why does the public or the business discounts screeners. The public doesn't discount screeners. The public discounts everybody they can't see talking. Directors, producers, screenwriters. What directors, do, when we talk about the public, who do they know? Spielberg? Spielberg, Scorsese, Scorsese, Michael Bay. Michael Bay. Okay. That's it. A couple of, you know, right. a couple of. They don't know. They don't care. Who the Coen brothers. Do they? Yeah. Okay. When we talk about the public, I love the Coen brothers, but, you know, most of the movies that they've done they're not like what you'd call like... They're a brand though now. They're promoted as a brand. Fargo, they're promoted as a brand. How they're promoted doesn't mean that when you go walk into a Walmart somewhere and you say, you know, who directed... That's interesting. Hey, so who directed um, Intolerable Cruelty? They're going to say, what? <laughs> who directed right. what now? Um, they know Spielberg. By the way, I think that literally, if you came down to it, who they know, like, who's the director? Spielberg, right? People don't know who makes movies, nor, by the way, do they need to. We are not in the business of promoting people 
other than actors who help sure. sell movies. That's what's visible to them. They don't they don't owe us that. We're not. I don't write movies so that I'm famous. I don't write movies so that people know my name. I write movies so they go see it and enjoy it. In the business, I think, frankly, screenwriters are very well respected. We are so well respected that they work overtime to make us feel not respected because they're so scared of what we'll do if we recognize the enormous leverage we have. So they're frankly showing us the greatest respect by disrespecting us. <laughs> and then what uh, we have to do that. is then break through that to say, I know what's going on here. I'm going to behave in a manner that is commensurate with the, my own importance. And when you do that, it's remarkable to watch how they change. Right. Not false importance, not petulance, not just but actually understanding this doesn't go without me. This and doesn't work right. without somebody serving this role. And I'm going to be a grown up. I'm not going to talk to you like you're an idiot. I'm not going to talk to you like you don't have your own problems. But I'm going to be a grown-up part of this, and then then you see how much respect they have. Right. It's 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 this idea, and it's where we started that uh, that defining for yourself who you are, and defining for yourself what your best self looks like. Yes, is an incredibly powerful thing that most people don't take the time to do. It unfortunately requires you to take a good long look at yourself, and sometimes that is hard. I mean, you talk about bad critics. You know, when you read the review that you've written of yourself, that's the worst. And you just have to then say, okay, but then there's the one critic we should read. And what is he saying? And how can I, can I, can I make this better? You know, and also, can I also allow that guy to say nice things about me too? That I think, yeah. Who, who am I? You have to, if you're going to write down the deficits, you have to write down the assets too. Have to. And when you have that, then you can say, well, imagine if that person put all this together where they could go and that's who I want to be. And I think that's what you did in the shadow of your gigantic failure. <laughs> well, the funny thing is I did it even more in the shadow of a gigantic success. But what I've come to appreciate in the final analysis is that as a human being, I have a built-in inefficiency. There is no perfectible me. I cannot be perfect. I can't fix everything. There will always be uh, energy leakage and loss and mistakes, no matter what. I can improve. I can find, I can change. But once you let go of, of you know, chasing perfect, then you don't beat yourself up so much for the mistakes you make. And I do make a lot. I know that to be true. <laughs> you can uh, you can find you're at CL Mason yes. on the uh, on, on the, the Twitter. Twitter on the Twitter. Uh, I am at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, Craig. I so appreciate this and uh, can't wait to return the favor. Uh, you will. You will. Thank you for having me. Bye. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on Podcasts.